Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, if you'd like to turn. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the red one that you can find in the pew in front of you. We'll be reading verses 13 through 23. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the ki- I'm sorry, into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the invis- image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of all your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, and held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. These are the words of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our God and Father, there is power in your words. Your words spoke and made what is from what is not. Your words gave the universe its being. Your words speak to us now today as you provide them in your scriptures. I pray that your Holy Spirit might open our hearts, that we might be attentive to them. I pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Eric, and I am the new still. I don't know when it stops being new. This is only the second week. At some point, I'll have to stop saying this uh, a year or two down the road, but the new pastor here (laughs) at Kishwaukee. Um, and it is just good to be with you. A word of explanation, if you weren't here last Sunday, we are um, starting, this is the second in a series through the book of Colossians, so we will be walking through the whole book, so if you want um, in your spare time, or if you're wondering what to read in the Bible some morning, you're welcome to read ahead and get spoilers for what's to come, but um, in the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to this church that he never actually visited, and this church that is in many ways being tempted to, abound, to abandon the foundational kind of truths of the gospel. And he's writing to them to kind of communicate to them again those core truths of Christianity and of what it means to be the church. To remind them of kind of keeping the first things first. And so it seems like just a great place for us to start as we start walking through life together. And this week, as I was thinking about this text, what I found myself thinking about was war movies. 
um, and something that I love in war movies. And what I love isn't the explosions and the violence and the action. Well, I mean, I'm a guy. I guess I do love those things. Um, But what I was thinking about was the epic speech before the big battle. The epic speech. Some of you can probably even remember some of those speeches or know them by heart. The, the we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. They can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. <laughs> the today we celebrate our Independence Day, or whatever. But here's how all of those speeches work. Everything looks grim, and the soldiers are about to face these impossible odds, and they're exhausted from weeks or months of fighting, and their commander stands up, and he gives them this talk And what he does in that talk is try to lift the soldier's eyes from their immediate circumstances to the larger thing that they're a part of. So he talks about their country, about freedom, about their families back home. He reminds the soldiers of what it is that they're fighting for, why the fight matters, that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And by the end of that, they're all clapping and they're yelling and they jump up and they run out into the hail of bullets because they're not thinking only about their immediate circumstances anymore. They're thinking about something bigger. And I love those speeches because in some ways I resonate with those soldiers and get what they're feeling. Not, of course, that I know what it's like to run into machine gun fire or to sleep in a trench But all of us know what it's like to feel that discouragement and defeat, to feel like life is grim and the odds are impossible and we're exhausted from years of fighting. Now, our battles are more ordinary, battling a discouraging job, battling trying to figure out how to raise children, battling sadness and fear and disease and death, but they're battles just the same. And part of why I love those speeches is because I feel like I need to be encouraged like that. I need to be reminded of what I'm fighting for. And in many ways, this is what Paul is doing in our passage this morning. The Colossians are being tempted to give up the fight. Paul's call to them in this passage, the reason he says what he does is summed up in verse 23. All he wants them to do is to continue in your faith, established and firm, and not move from the hope held out in the gospel, to not give up, to fight on. But to do this, like those commanders giving speeches, Paul is reminding the Colossians of a larger truth. The largest truth, really. Paul is reminding them of the greatness of Jesus. He paints this glorious picture of who Jesus is because he hopes to lift their eyes from their present circumstances and show them that they are a part of something larger. They are a part of Jesus' kingdom. And we, in the battles of our lives, need to see that same picture. We need to be reminded of the greatness of Christ Not because it's going to fix all those hard things. It won't. We're still going to struggle with work and parenting. We're still going to have to fight. But seeing the greatness of Jesus reminds us that it is worth it and that we are a part of something bigger, too. It helps us to fight on. So this morning, I want us to spend some time just looking at this picture that Paul paints. And the outline of that picture is actually pretty simple but beautiful, I want us to reflect on what it means that Jesus is king 
and that Jesus is ours. Jesus is king and Jesus is ours. First, Jesus is king. Verses 15 through 20 of this text in Colossians, they're famous for painting this beautiful, powerful picture of the rule of Christ. Let's just walk through that picture verse by verse. First, Paul shows the Colossians that Jesus is the king of creation. The king of creation. He tells them that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that somehow in Jesus, God himself is made visible, made incarnate. That when you look at Jesus, somehow what you're seeing is the infinite, all-powerful creator God. And Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which isn't to say that the Son had a beginning in time or something, but the firstborn in the ancient world was the person who had the rights and privileges to everything. The inheritance and the throne and the family name all belonged to him. And so Jesus is God made flesh, and he is the one that everything belongs to. And why do they belong to him? According to Paul, because Jesus was their creator. He was the God who made them. In Jesus, according to verse 16, everything was created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, Paul says. Which is just another way of emphasizing everything, right? Is it on the earth? Then Jesus made it. And is it not in the earth? Then Jesus made that too. What about invisible stuff or spiritual stuff that we can't see? Yeah, Jesus made that. Jesus made everything. And not just natural stuff either, not just hills and birds and slugs. Jesus also created all the powers of this world, Paul says, both political and spiritual. Thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. Their power was all given to them by Jesus as well. And so it ultimately belongs to him too. That every crown on every king and every title of every politician and every bullet and every dictator's gun all rightfully belong to Jesus. And whatever power the people that wield them wield, it's borrowed power. And not only are those things created by Jesus, Paul says, but through him, it was his might at work in their creation. And for him, all their glory and splendor are ultimately meant to show forth the glory and splendor of Jesus, the King. And not only did Jesus create all these things, Paul says as we walk through the passage, but he upholds them. In verse 17, the planets keep spinning and the crops keep growing because Jesus somehow makes it so. If he didn't, everything would simply cease to be. I think too many of us can have too shrunken a picture of Jesus, that he's too small. That when Paul talks this way, it can seem almost strange to us because we take just, I don't know, this flannel graph from Sunday school Or that guy with the curly hair and the kind of smiling eyes that you see on knickknacks at the Christian bookstore. And we think that that is all that Jesus is. That he's only approachable and human or tame or weak. And he is approachable and human, but he's also transcendent and divine. And he's definitely not tame or weak. Jesus breathed out the universe Paul's saying in this picture, that somehow he, he blew out blazing stars like my children blow bubbles. He twirled his finger and spun out nebulas in space. He named the name of every one of the 30 million different insects in the Amazon and gave them their being. That when I talk, 
what comes out is carbon dioxide, but that when Jesus talks, what came out are redwoods and white whales and the moons of Jupiter. He breathed out the universe, and he upholds the universe. The sun would not come up tomorrow if he didn't will it. The rain would not fall without his mercy. Gravity would not hold my feet to the ground, and the ground in my feet wouldn't even exist if Jesus did not continue to will it to be. Ultimately, Jesus reigns over the universe. That he is a human being, but he is also God the king. His throne is bigger than the open sky that you see all around when you stand in the middle of a field. As the theologian Abraham Kuyper puts it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, Mine. Christ is the king of creation. And Paul says, as we keep just walking through this picture that he paints, he's the king of salvation. The creation as we experience it is a broken thing. Because of sin, it is a mess. And it is King Jesus who's the one saving it as well. So Jesus is the head of the church, Paul goes on to say in verse 18. The church belongs to him, not to any human being. It is created by him and for his glory. And Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Redemption, buying us back from being dead in sin and raising us to new life, that belongs to Jesus. And resurrection, death being defeated and our bodies being raised to glorious life again, that belongs to Jesus too. He was the one who broke open the grave and paved the pathway of hope. Jesus is not just God, he is also God's means of saving the world. In verse 19, Paul says, The fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus, so that all things can be reconciled to God. It is Jesus' blood making peace through the cross, and his obedience winning salvation and covering our sin. And as much as we owe Jesus thanks then for every good thing in creation, we owe Jesus thanks also for the good that we experience in salvation. And notice the scope of salvation for Paul. It's not even just souls going to heaven that Jesus reconciles. Somehow, ultimately, according to verse 20, it's all things. All things. Again, things on earth and things in heaven. What means everything. So Jesus isn't just saving us. Jesus is somehow at work to save and restore the world. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the king who, that rules and the king that fights for what he rules. What does all of that mean for us? Well, at least one of the things I think it means is that we all need to seek to take that Jesus more seriously. We need to approach him with awe and a sense of wonder and and gravity, maybe even a little trembling sometimes. We can easily have too small a view of Jesus. The proof of that, I think, is in the way that we all co-opt him and use him to kind of just validate whatever we already think. I mean, I think about that out in culture, right? Like, I have, just in the last month or two, read essays explaining to me that Jesus was a socialist, and Jesus was a capitalist, and Jesus would have supported PETA, and Jesus would have supported the NRA. And I'm not commenting on what Jesus would support, but the thing you notice when you encounter all of these essays after essays about the things in our modern world Jesus would think is that in every case, what he thinks is exactly what the person writing the essay already thinks. And it's not just things I've read. 
It's something that we can all fall into. If Jesus doesn't challenge us, if there isn't some tension between my way of life and the way of life that he's calling me to, then I've probably remade Jesus to just look like me. If Jesus looks and thinks and lives just like I do, he probably isn't the creator king anymore. What we need to do constantly as Christians is to seek with repentance and prayer to try to see Jesus more and more as he truly is. I mean, I think about this every time I step into the pulpit, right? If I can just speak about it personally for a moment. I mean, preaching should be a fearful thing because in some sense what you're doing is you're standing up in front of a bunch of people and telling them what God says and what Jesus is like. And I'm sure that I fail in all kinds of ways as I try to do that. What it means to me to have to reckon with Jesus as king is that I need to constantly seek to draw lines between my pet opinions on whatever I'm talking about and what scripture says, not confusing one with the other. It means that I need to come to scripture trying to find how Jesus would challenge me and us rather than just find ways he would validate what I already think. And this is how we all need to live in the world. If creation belongs to King Jesus, that means that what I do with any part of it needs to be subject to his rule. Creation exists to serve him, not me. And I exist to serve him, not myself. If Jesus is the king of salvation, that means that the church should belong to him too. That our question together as believers should never be how to make church more comfortable for us or more like what we would like, but rather how to make it be something that Jesus would rejoice in and that would serve his mission in the world. Let me give one very practical way to try to act out that living with Jesus as king and submitting to him. When I pray, it is easy for me to only pray for the things that most comfortably fit with how I'd like the world to be. I confess the sins that are easy for me to confess. I ask Jesus to help in the ways that will most serve my interests. I give thanks for the things that are best for me in the world. But scripture is full of prayers that don't fit that mold. The psalmist asks Jesus to reveal to him his hidden faults. Jesus himself teaches us to pray for our enemies. And on the cross, praise God's forgiveness for those who are crucifying him. The Apostle Paul gives thanks for his suffering for the sake of the gospel. Those prayers make sense only because they are recognizing that Jesus is king and that praying to him involves trying to submit ourselves to his will rather than get him to submit to ours. So try a little bit of that this afternoon or this evening when you pray. Ask for God to reveal your sins to you. Not the sins that you want to confess, but the ones that you don't want to acknowledge. Pray for the people and the things that you don't want to pray for. Maybe even the people and the things that you don't like. And pray God's blessing and care and grace on them. Give thanks even for the hard stuff. Not pretending like it isn't hard, but seeking God's blessing even as you have to think about that. As we practice that in prayer, it starts to teach us how to live as servants of Jesus the King. So Paul wants the Colossians to recognize the splendor of Jesus this King. But there's something else going on in this text too. And that's good, 
<coughs> because I think that there's this tension that we can feel with everything that I've just said. I remember um, five years ago, my daughter Rebecca had just been born. And those of you not familiar with the story, Rebecca was born at 27 weeks, which is really early, and the first few weeks of her life, it was very touch and go with whether she'd survive or not. And I remember a few days into that process, sitting in my car and talking to God and saying to him, Lord, you are in control and you're going to do as you please, but so help me, I will fight you every step of the way. And there's something fine about that prayer, I think. There's something okay. God's okay with that. That is the heart of a parent for their child. But there's also something problematic. And here's what it was as I came to recognize it in my own heart. It's one thing to just acknowledge that God is in control. Jesus is king, and we need to profess that. We need to live like it. But just saying that, just acknowledging that he is in control, um, that he has power and authority, that's not enough, right? Kings, kings can be tyrants. Kings can be arbitrary and cruel. To get the biblical picture, we need to not just recognize that Jesus is in control, but also that he is good, that he loves us, that he is king, and that he is ours, that he's ours. This hymn to the supremacy of Jesus is surrounded on both sides by two other truths about him. First, in verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us that Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer. Look at verse 13. Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's redeemed us, verse 14 says. Redeeming means buying back. It's like we're slaves and Jesus comes and pays so that we might be set free. I don't know what pictures you have of salvation, but that's one of the main ones in the Bible. It is Jesus, the warrior king, riding a horse into the very heart of darkness and fighting the hosts of evil and Satan to bring us out. It is Jesus storming hell, beating down the gates and rescuing us who were prisoners there in his love for us. Jesus is our rescuer. And Jesus is our reconciler, too. Our reconciler. In verse 21, Paul reminds us that we weren't just prisoners of the enemy, that we were the enemy. We were alienated from God and enemies because of sin. But Jesus, the king's response, wasn't to smite us. It wasn't to destroy us. It was to reconcile us, as verse 22 puts it, which means to put us in right and good and close and friendly and loving relationship with God. We who were God's enemies are made his friends. God has taken people soaked with the soot of sin and washed us, and now we're presented before him, as holy and spotless, with nobody left who can level an accusation before our Lord. What Scripture teaches us is that through the work of Christ, we have the same standing before God that Jesus does. Verse 13 hints at that. God brings us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, which means that now we get that same acceptance and that same love that the Son, our King, has. All the glorious privileges Paul proclaims here about Jesus are somehow privileges that rain down on us as we belong to him. 
You know, one of the problems with having too small a view of Jesus and putting him, pulling him down to our level so that he looks just like us, besides just not being true, one of the problems is that that Jesus can't really do anything for us. He can't save us. He can only ever leave us exactly as we are, rather than making us into something else or more. But the kingship of Jesus in Scripture is a source of hope to us because as we elevate Christ to his proper place on the throne, we ourselves are somehow elevated as well. A Jesus no bigger than you can't rescue you from your bondage and brokenness, but King Jesus can. A Jesus who is just like you, he won't challenge you, but he also can't save you from yourself and the crookedness in your own heart, but King Jesus can. All of which is to say that Jesus is the king, but he is also good. He is not a tyrant, but he is our king, a king for us. He is ours. He uses his power, the power that formed the universe to rescue us. His great work of salvation, of reconciling all things to God, sweeps us up in its tide. So what do we do with all of that? What do those great truths about Jesus being king and Jesus being ours, where do they meet us in life? Let me offer two thoughts. First, recognizing the greatness and love of Jesus should challenge the way we think about our priorities in this world. Jesus, as king, lays claim to everything, Every square inch of it. As Paul puts it in our text, everything is for him, including everything in our own lives. We exist, in a real sense, to live lives serving and glorifying our king. But the reality that Jesus is ours helps us to understand that that is actually a good and beautiful thing. See, as much as we can kind of rebel or revolt at the idea of Jesus being this king that we need to serve, service is not actually something that you can opt out of in life. As that great theologian Bob Dylan once put it, everybody's got to serve somebody. We all live our lives putting something at the center. The problem is that most of the things that we put in the center can't hold the weight. You can serve your own appetites, pleasure or comfort or safety or vanity. But those things are too small to build a life on. People who live only for themselves, it's almost as if they start to shrink as people when you watch it from the outside. They shrivel up into something less than the sort of human being that they're designed to be. But even serving something else besides ourselves or our appetites isn't enough. You can serve other people, but if you put your hope for meaning and fulfillment in them, it's going to fail. Nobody is that strong a foundation. You can serve your country or an ideal like freedom or success, but those things aren't going to hold either. While they're good things, they're still corruptible and worldly, and making them your ultimate ambition will leave others crushed under the wheels of that pursuit. What kind of thing is worth serving? What can hold the weight? The only answer is something like King Jesus. 
That it's him. He made it all. And he sustains it all. And he redeems it all. And so he is something that you can invest all of that hope and all of that weight that you can put at the center and find still there despite the challenges and disappointments that life brings your way. Think about it like this. I love my kids, right? I love them, but they're going to disappoint me. It's going to happen. And I'm going to disappoint them for sure. If I make my life all about them, if I stake all of my meaning and identity and hope in them and in them being happy and in them succeeding and growing, then one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to rebel because they are their own people and not just, they don't just exist to serve my identity and meaning, and so they're going to rebel and, and kick out those crutches I've tried to use them as, or they won't. And they'll be crushed under the weight of the impossible expectations I have for them. If I make them the center of my universe, if I make them the thing that I'm all about, in the end all it will do is destroy them and me. But if I center my universe on Jesus, then my love for my children falls into place. I love them because he loves me. And because he calls me to, and because he has created them as these beautiful and unique creatures and entrusts me with their care. And so I can help them learn to follow him, and I can applaud when they succeed, and I don't, but I don't have to demand perfection from them. I don't have to treat them like all of my hope and meaning and identity rests in their happiness. Because when they fail, or when I fail, I can still stand on Jesus because he's there as an unmoved foundation. By making Jesus the center of my life, I can love and serve my children in a way that is healthy and good. So this text challenges our priorities. But it is also the thing that gives us hope in the fight. Because Jesus, this great king, he loves us, He's our rescuer and reconciler and is on our side. He can help us in the midst of that discouragement and struggle that we talked about at the beginning. And I'm not going to try to sell you something here. All right? The splendor and love of Jesus do not mean that every frustrating or annoying thing in life is going to somehow get fixed and go away. It doesn't even mean that the really heavy and heartbreaking things are going to go away. But what it does mean is first that none of the hard stuff that comes our way is too big to face. Not sadness, not loss, not disease, not death. When we're down in the middle of the fight and all we can see is the enemy looming over us, we can feel like we are lost, like the fight is hopeless. But it is not hopeless Paul reminds us, because we have Jesus, the creator and savior, on our side. And no matter how big those enemies look, Jesus is infinitely bigger. He does, in his mysterious wisdom, allow all sorts of hardships to come, but he is there with them and with us. And in his arms is strength that is greater than all that those enemies could ever begin to dream. Strength to stand and to endure. And more than that, it means that even when those hard things confront us, 
that we have Jesus, that he's ours, that they cannot touch the hope that we have rested on him, that whether it comes in deliverance from those things tomorrow or deliverance from those things at the resurrection and new creation, that it will come because Jesus has rescued and reconciled us, that he has made us a part of his kingdom, that he has made us a part of his people and his family. He is ours, regardless of those things out there in the battlefield of life. And we are his. So as we go out this week, let's each turn our hearts and eyes towards this Jesus. Reflect on his glorious power. Rejoice in his redeeming love. And stand firm in the midst of the battle because Jesus Christ is our King. Pray with me. Our God and Father, I give thanks that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. I give thanks that through him we find hope for salvation, that we find hope for deliverance, that he is our hope, Lord, our great King and Sovereign. I pray that we might trust in him, that we might fix our hope on him, place him at the center of our lives. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. We pray these things in his sweet and glorious name. Amen. Stand with me now as we sing um, hymn 67.